Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Peter. Hi. I'm Peter, a compulsive reader. Hi, Peter. And thank you, Rod, for asking me to speak. Rod was extremely persistent, um, as Rod can be. Um, he had called me back at uh, the beginning of November to speak, and I was just going, getting ready to go in for surgery and was going to be out of commission for a while. And so uh, he gave me a call, I guess, last week or sometime, and said, hey, can you do it again? Can you show up? And, um, and sure enough, I could make it, so... I'm very glad to be here. Some faces I recognize, some faces I don't. Um, back into this meeting, the concept of a podcast. Uh, interesting. Um, <laughs> you know, I spent so much time listening to tapes. Um, after I was in program a while, I moved to Paris, France for two years. And that's really where I got abstinent. And there's a couple meetings. I'd say there's about four or five meetings a week. At least there was back then. And, but it was the same four or five people. So, you know, come January, you, you were looking for some new blood, and the tapes that we could get were just a lifesaver. And, um, and so I think it's great that you do a podcast um, and that you can download this anywhere in the world. Um, so... Let me think about, yeah, I did my best not to think about it. I forgot it was going to be a long share. I just, before going into a meeting, I really try and not think about it. So it's not, whatever comes out is what's supposed to come out. I don't know what the message is supposed to be. Um, I'm just the messenger. Um, I'll get a few stats out of the way. Oh, yeah, I also brought some pictures. And I thought, well, it's a podcast, but, you know, there's other people here. All of these pictures, you know, um, have been while I was in program or when I took a brief hiatus. Um, my life is a result of OA. You know, I'm here because of the 12 steps. Um, the, if you ever wonder what effect OA can have on someone's life, or the 12 steps can have on somebody's life, come see me and then go visit some of my family members. And the difference is absolutely stunning. And it's almost, you know, the ones that are still alive. And it is... Um, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I'm still coming to meetings. I don't know why I'm abstinent. I'm also an AA. don't know why I'm sober. Um, a lot of other people I know stopped coming to meetings, stopped dealing with abstinence, stopped being sober or clean. Um, and I'm not quite sure what it was that kept me here. Maybe it's grace. Maybe it's just the way it's supposed to be. But I'm very, very grateful for it. I'll pass these around. Just um, and and I guess the the, the first part is to, to talk about is you know I come from a family of compulsive overeaters. Big surprise. Um, when I was a year old, I weighed about thirty pounds, and I was my mother's first kid. And um, she took me. The story she tells is she took me to the doctor, and for my one year checkup, and she said he doesn't eat. <laughs> the doctor said. Um, to my mom, um, does he look hungry? She's like, no. 
And she just would feed me whenever. Um, and she was a compulsive overeater. Maybe I cried. I don't know. But I was a big kid. And growing up, I was always, I was put on my first diet when I was five years old. Um, I remember always getting the lecture from the doctor about you need to lose weight your, for your height and your size. And, you know, I look back at the pictures now and, you know, I, I wasn't fat. I was heavy. Husky was the word. We don't have that word anymore. And I had to wear husky jeans. Um, by today's standards, um, I probably didn't look that out of place. But back in the late 60s, early 70s, I did look a little out of place. Um, and I remember my in 1976, um, my parents, uh, who were divorced by that point, both went on... The amino acid diets were very big at that point. And I remember... Going on that, I was in the sixth grade and going on an amino acid diet to lose I don't know how many pounds. And, you know, I've got a son in the fifth grade. I cannot imagine putting him on a diet like that. It just, I cannot even imagine that. And um, it's not one of those what were my parents thinking type of thought. It's just, um, you know, I was living in a different world. Um, Food was my friend. There was a lot of chaos when my parents were still married. Uh, I retreated to food. There was a lot of screaming and yelling. Um, and for me, food was that comfort. That was, It was that comfort, um, the security blanket. Uh, I love sugar. And um, I um, just, I remember as a kid, my mom would come home from the grocery store as soon as the, all the groceries were taken out of the car, you know, I'd be stealing stuff, hiding it, you know, having my little stash. That way I was sure there would be enough stuff for me to eat. And, um, you know, that's not really normal. I'd go away to camp and, um, I, you know, I was the only guy, kid that I know that went away to tennis camp and gained weight. Kind of back. I mean, they're having a running... We had to jog to breakfast. I mean, it was... I remember the year they instituted that. I was like you got to be kidding me. Guess what? I jog. If, if breakfast, you know, if I wasn't getting breakfast, uh, if I didn't jog, I jog. Um, you know, and my parents got, you know, tried to get me physically active in sports, and um, and I ended up playing tennis. Uh, and people would usually look at me when I come to the tournaments, and they go, you play tennis? You look like you should play football. And I go, well, I'm playing tennis. And, and I was a great player. Um... And one of the events that I had sort of set the tone or gave a snapshot of where my mind was at that time. When I was 16, um, I, uh, there was a new tennis coach I started working with, and he was teaching, um, he was a coach to a couple of pros at the time um, who were on the circuit, um, like Pam Shriver and a couple of other people in the mid-70s. And um, so I was able to get an appointment with him and start working with him. And so I went first visit. And he's like, okay, changed my strokes, my stance, a whole bunch of other things. And he goes, okay, work on this, come back next week. And I want to see how you do. So he came back the next week, started hitting. After about five minutes, he goes, um, how much did you practice? I said, I didn't. And he goes, okay. He goes, everything I asked you to do, you're doing perfectly. Perfectly. It's as if you've been, you know, playing this way your whole life. He said, you got a lot of talent. He goes, you want to play pro? You can play pro. You can go all the way if you want. But don't waste my time. 
you got to make a decision if this is what you want to do with your life. Because you have the talent. It's just a question of whether you want to put the focus and the effort to it. So think about it um, and let me know next week. I was like, okay, I want to, I want to go pro. I never went back for another lesson. And I literally, at that point, put down the tennis racket. And I don't think I picked it up for 20 years. And it was kind of as if all of a sudden I could see my life mapped out, a, a, a road to success, and then along with that, all of these imagined pressures that would come with it. And I just was like, no, I don't want that. I don't want, I can't handle that. And so this sort of running away from success running away from a goal almost achieved, became for the next 10 years a real reoccurring theme in my life. Um, and um, even today, for some reason, I have a tough time going out and playing tennis. I, I force myself to go out and play. Um, but after about 40 minutes, I just get bored. I, who knows why? I mean, I literally spent my whole childhood playing, so maybe that had something to do with it. Um, you know, apart from the food, um, you know, chaotic household, um, alcoholic father, um, drug addicted mother, I, I had a pretty normal life. Uh, and, um, you know, high school came, uh, then college, and I remember going away to college, and it was, uh, I put on the freshman 25, and um, I remember there was, um, coming back, winter break, None of my clothes fit. I had one pair of jeans that fit. And um, I couldn't get into any of my clothes. And it just, it scared me. It really, that had never happened before. And I remember it was Christmas Eve. I was spending Christmas Eve with my father and at the time his girlfriend. And, um, you know, my father's like, you put on a lot of weight. I'm like, yeah, freshman 15. He goes, you know what your problem is? You're a compulsive overeater. You need to go to OA. I'm going to OA. And uh, he goes, you know, you, you've, we all have this problem. I was like, okay, here comes the lecture. And um, so for about 10, 15 minutes, I listened, and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, I'll check out one of those meetings, which I didn't do. Uh, and, and I resented the lecture, but uh, and I knew not to talk about food or weight or anything with my father from that point forward. But he was kind of persistent. And so when I was back for summer break, at the time I was dating someone, uh, who was surprised compulsive overeater too. Um, and I remember it's Fourth of July weekend, and I don't. It just there was some insanity going on. I can't remember what it was. And I finally, and at that point, my mother, my parents were divorced, was also going to OA. And so I asked her about where a newcomer's meeting was just to check it out. And so my girlfriend and I went, and it, it was in Bethesda, Maryland. It was July 4th weekend, 1983. And it was, um, it was an awful meeting. I mean, it just depressing. Everything you would hope OA not to be, this was it. <laughs> And I was like, and my girlfriend's like, oh, never going back there. And I thought the same thing. Um, but for some reason, you know, I went back mainly because I thought, well, for her, maybe I'll find out some information. Not for me, because at that point, I had just lost all this weight. I'd lost about 30 pounds. So I didn't need anything like OA. And, and, and the way I lost it was I went back to school after the lecture from my father. 
living in the dorms, and we all go to, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner together, and then go to classes. And so, literally, um, what I did with, with my friends was said, um, okay, what can I eat? i got to lose weight. They're like, you can have this. Can I have seconds? No. Can I have that? No. Have this. So, literally, every meal, I had a couple of people telling me what I could have and not have. And that's how I lost the weight. It was great. School ended. And I did not have those people there to sort of say, you can't have this, you can have that. And I was terrified. Because I was down to this weight that I thought um, was where I should be almost kind of my anorexic phase. I'm I'm like about, I got on the scale uh, um, about two or three days ago. It was 184. Um, At the time, I don't remember what I was, but I figured if I got to 170, things would get better. My grades would get better. My social life would get better. I'd feel better. I'd feel happier. Um, Things would just go a little easier. So I got to 170. That was not the number. Uh, So I thought, okay, 160. That's where I got to get to for all that stuff to kick in. So I lost weight, got to 160. Hmm, grades didn't really improve. Social life didn't improve. Um, I had a girlfriend at that point, but I was still, you know. So I figured 160 is not the number. Maybe 150. So I got to 150. I got all the way down to 144 pounds. And I was waiting for it to get better. I was waiting for that combination to kick in that somehow... I wouldn't worry about food. I'd be thin enough. Everything would be okay. My head would stop sort of screaming at me. And it didn't happen. And I was also terrified to go back uh, the following year with all, in, in September with all the weight gain back. It, it just would have been a huge, huge defeat. And so um, I was exercising at the gym and working out. And, and, and that's where the context of going to my first meeting. So, of course, I didn't think I needed OA. I wasn't overeating. I wasn't eating. But I went to a second meeting, and at that meeting, it was a discussion meeting. And this is in suburban Washington, D.C. I think this meeting was actually in Washington, D.C. 1983, no men. Uh, no one under the age of probably 30. You know, I was 18. Um, a bunch of middle-aged housewives and um, of which I'm probably older than all of them now. Um, and I just sat there and listened, and I was amazed at what I heard. I was stunned. Because for the first time in my life, I heard people talking about feelings that I felt that I couldn't put words to. I didn't have the vocabulary to even tell myself what it was I was feeling. But when they talked about it, I completely identified, and it was like, that's it. That's how I've been feeling. That's exactly what's been going on with me. So from that point on, I was like, okay, this is the place. And pretty much from that day forward until sometime in 1999, 98, somewhere in there, I don't remember when, I went to meetings on a weekly basis. I had sponsors. Um, I had, uh, for a while, I had sponsees, was very involved, led meetings, did all sorts of stuff. Uh, when school ended, I never got asked in those first couple years uh, I was in school. It's down in Charlottesville, Virginia, very small school. And the reason I couldn't get absent was I was drinking a lot. My first OA sponsor was this woman um, who was also an AA. And for the food plan, we were using Gray Sheet, which was an old preset food plan, and which 
It was killing me. And um, she goes, you know, I only can give to you what I do myself. I don't drink, so none of my sponsees, that's their food plan. They don't drink either. And I was like, this is OA. This is not <laughs> AA, and it's none of our business whether I drink or not. And, you know, I was 18, 19, 20 years old, University of Virginia. I Come on. Weird enough, I'm not going to try, you know, I'm going to, you know, eat differently than everyone else, but not drink. So I just kept drinking, and I couldn't get abstinent. It wasn't until I got sober that I got any measure of abstinence. Uh, and um, my problem was sugar. So, of course, drinking alcohol, much of it sugar-based, it was going to be really hard to give up sugar in food form. You know, I'd still get a rum and Diet Coke, thinking that would solve the problem. It didn't. Um, but when I finally got sober, I got sober. I was sober literally one day when I was in, in college. And I had no idea what to do with my life. People would say, well, what are you going to do? This person's going to law school, MBA. Nothing. I could not even get it get through one interview with anybody. So um, I decided I was going to move to Paris. And it was an original answer. And people were like, wow, okay. Have you ever been? No. I didn't speak French. Um, I had some very distant family. So um, graduated and went. And I was traveling around with a friend of mine for a while in the south of Spain and went up. Uh, I had some distant family that I saw and then went up to Paris. At that point, I was about three, four, five weeks sober, and I went to an AA meeting there. And um, at the end of the meeting, they always ask me, you know, any announcements? Any? And I raised my hand. I'm like, here, I'm an alcoholic from Charlottesville, Virginia, and I need to talk to someone after the meeting. I'm like going crazy. And so two guys came up to me after the meeting, and uh, they said... Um, Hey, we're from Charlottesville. Yeah, let's talk. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. Then this woman came up to me, and she goes, are you in OA? I said, uh, yeah. How'd you know? That's my first question. How'd you know? And she goes, oh, I just had this, I don't know, this intuition that you were. And she goes, we have an OA meeting starting at about five minutes downstairs. Why don't you come on downstairs? So, I, I, and that's really where I got abstinent. And Paris, by the way, is the easiest people, place in the world to get abstinent, notwithstanding trips to Paris. I, it's changed now. I was back there about a year and a half, two years ago, and it's completely changed. But 25 years ago, um, you know, you went to the butcher shop to get your meat, you went to the patisserie to get your patisserie, you went to the chocolatier to get your chocolate. You know, if you didn't want chocolate or bread, you didn't go into those shops. It was really simple. Um, and... It, it, and that's how I got abstinent. And I came back to the States. During that time, and this is important, I had a sponsor. I started dating one of the five people in the program. <laughs> we both had the same sponsor. And I figured, okay, you know, I'm not going to put her through this. So I said to my sponsor, I'm going to find somebody else. You keep working with her. You, you don't need to hear two sides of this. It's way too small as it is. And um, I never got another sponsor again. Until I came back in the program in 2005, and I think that's eventually it, right there. I was sowing the seeds to leave, even though that was like 1987, 1988, and I didn't leave till 10 years later. I was already sowing the seeds, and for some reason, oh, you know, I need a man to sponsor me. I need a straight man to sponsor me. Then I came to LA, no excuse, plenty of straight men if I wanted that, and but no, I just couldn't find the right one, and um, so I sponsored myself. <laughs> and slowly, OA didn't seem to be working. 
and I slowly began to put on weight, and I went and saw a nutritionist, and I was eating all this sugar-free stuff, and the nutritionist said, come on, this is sugar. It may say sugar-free, but you're metabolizing this as sugar. You, you know, it's like eating sugar. You might as well just eat sugar. It's probably better for you. That's all I needed to hear. When I had stopped eating sugar, Ben and Jerry's was not nationally distributed. And all I heard about for 10, 15 years was Ben and Jerry's. So, of course, that was the first thing I went out on. And, you know, it was very gradual. It was very gradual. And what happened was I slowly stopped coming to meetings because it didn't work. I didn't talk to anyone about it, but it didn't work. And, you know, I started gaining weight, 200, 220, 230, got to somewhere, I stopped weighing myself at about 225. I probably got to around 235. And the amazing thing is when I was 144, I was scared to death that I could not control my weight and I didn't want to eat a thing. At 235, I was perfectly in control and could stop at any point that I wanted to. (laughs) I just never wanted to for very long. You know, it's like, I'm going to stop now, and then two days later, I'd be off to the races. Um, At that point, I had a real health scare. My father dropped dead of a heart attack, um, and it, my wife's kind of badgering me into going to see a doctor, thinking I might have the same thing, which I did. And, um, you know, I shuffle in and see this guy, and, um, and I knew there was some stuff going on. I had really high cholesterol, and no medication would help it, and... He said, um, and this guy was the head of, you know, cardiac preventative medicine at UCLA and was doing this experimental program, and a, and a good friend got me in on this. And um, he just said, looking at your charts, looking at everything here, he goes, you have a 100% chance of a heart attack. You will have a heart attack in your life. The question is, where are you going to have it next year, or 10 years, or 20 years down the road? He goes, you got to lose 50 pounds. You're running LA's marathon next, this year. So start training. I make all my patients do it. I don't care if they're 80. They're running a marathon. And he goes, you're going to take these drugs. We're going to try and see if that works. And they did, which was great. And he said, but you know, they're only going to work for a while. As soon as you hit about 50, they're going to stop really working. And so it's all going to be about your weight. So if you want to stay alive, you got to get your weight down. And so I tried all sorts of crazy things, ran the marathon, gained the weight back, lost the weight. You know, every time I start running, losing your weight. And I got my weight back down, and I knew I was going to gain it right back up. And I thought about, you know, the only time I never had a problem with weight, that I never had a problem with sugar, that I never had a problem with food, was when I was abstinent in a way. Even when I wasn't abstinent in a way, food was still not as much of an issue as it was when I was just out there eating. And I really tried everything else. And I came back in 2005. It was just before Halloween, 2005. And um, part of the reason I came back was um, a guy who became my sponsor in AA eventually, I had met in OA, and he had been coming to meetings and spoke a lot in OA. And, and several years later, I saw him. And it was the time when I had just seen the doctor and started losing weight. I guess I lost about 25 pounds on my own. And that's when he recognized me. You know you've gained weight when you got to lose weight for people then to recognize you. He says, hey, did you go to those OA meetings? Um, and he became my AA sponsor, and he had dropped out of OA. And he had gone through a similar situation, you know, just up and down the yo-yo. And then one day he said, you know, I've recommitted my abstinence. I've got three weeks abstinence. I'm back at meetings in OA. 
And he didn't say anything more than that. And I just thought, you know, if he can do it, I can do it. And that's really what led me back to the, the meeting in, in 2005. And I went to that meeting, and sure enough, there's always someone there. Uh, there was a guy I sponsored 15 years before in Philadelphia who was in that meeting. And I, I, I didn't even know that I lived in L.A. And um, I thought, okay, there's that sign. That's that sign that I... And I recognized the sign this time. I didn't recognize the sign when I was back in Paris. I recognized the sign, okay, this is where I want. I have to be. It may not be where I want to be. It's where I have to be. And I got a sponsor right away because I knew that. I knew why I stopped coming to meetings and um, began working with this guy. And, and one of the things that I learned so much was I had been using the program and the steps as a weapon and not a tool. You know, if I broke my abstinence, you know, I'd go on this big guilt trip, I'd beat myself up. It would be, well, I've already broken it, so I might as well just go to town. Um, and he really worked with me on looking at the program as a way to recover, not to become perfect, not to become a better person, but to recover from a disease that's killing people. Uh, my father died because his weight had yo-yoed for years and his heart just gave out. You know, today my mother's still alive, uh, which is a miracle, an absolute miracle. She's 74 or 5 probably 150 pounds overweight. She's down to a pack a day of cigarettes. She used to be three packs a day. Emphysema has slowed that down. Um, but she's still smoking. I mean, it's, it's amazing she's alive. And she basically, when she retired, she just um, sat on the couch and ate and smoked. I mean, that's kind of... I, so I see what the disease can give me. I see what's waiting for me. Um, and so I had to really reorient my relationship with the program and not have it as a weapon. And a lot of that had to do with changing my concept of a higher power. And... You know, it used to be, I'd say to myself, something bad would happen, something unexpected would happen, usually financial, uh, and that was something that was going to cost me a lot of money that I didn't think about. And I'd go, oh, you know, God, you know, it's like, why is God out to get me? Why is he screwing me over? No, 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 no. And my sponsor's like, let me know when you're tired of living that way. And I'm like, okay, I'm tired. <laughs> and... We started working on a new relationship. I had to develop a new concept of a higher power. And what I had to come to terms with is, my higher power is what's happening right now. It's God's will. Father drops dead. That's God's will. Good things happen. It's always good. Good things happen. It's God's will. When bad things happen, it's, you know, my fault. No, it's not. It's God's will. And it says, you know, it's all or nothing. And it's kind of like being abstinent, you know. For me, abstinence is refraining from sugar. If I'm kind of having a little bit of sugar, I can't stay abstinent. It's either I'm in it or I'm not in it. And it's the same with this concept of God. Either I believe that God is taking care of me or I don't. There's no in-between. And for me, finances have, have just really plagued me. And it's been a real roller coaster. I work in the area of finance. Um, counseling people, so I have to remain calm about that. <laughs> when I call my sponsor, I'm like, you know, insane. And, you know, part of that comes back to this concept. He goes, are you being taken care of? And I'm like, yeah. 
not the way I think. He's, no, 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 no. <laughs> Are you being taken care of? And he goes, you know, what is the source of your power? Is it your performance at work? Is it your bank account? Is it the things you have? Or is it your higher power? You're okay if you don't have any money. You're just as okay if you have a million dollars in the bank. You're okay if your house gets foreclosed upon. You're just as okay if it doesn't get foreclosed upon. That doesn't define you. What defines you is your disease and how you react to it. You're a compulsive overeater, and you have a spiritual path in which to recover on a daily basis. If you're going to focus on whether your life is good or not based upon whether you have money or not or whether things are going well or not, you're going to lose that because one day it will be bad. It will be worse than it is now. And if that's how you define it, then you don't have a God. You don't have a chance. And you're going to go out. And you're going to gain all the weight back. And so I've really had to keep working on a daily basis this concept of the higher power. And it's all or nothing. And, you know, with the food, you know, I had surgery back in November and I had to stop exercising. And I called my sponsor, I'm like, well, I'm going to gain all this weight back. And he goes, yeah, you'll probably gain some weight. You could eat less, but you probably won't. So, you know. <laughs> so he goes, you're going to gain a couple pounds. So after you start exercising again, you know, it'll sl- and you stay on your food plan, it'll slowly come off. And that's pretty much what's been happening. I didn't have to get delve into this whole battle with myself. All I had to do was stay abstinent, stay on the plan, talk to my sponsor, and everything would take care of itself. And more and more, that seems to be what the plan is today. Do the steps, be of service. The other thing too, this is something that um, was very counterintuitive. Uh, you know, I used to pray every day for the fear of financial insecurity to be removed, especially when I was dealing with all this financial stuff. And I was told to stop that. It says in the book, we only pray for being of service to other people and what we can do. Being of service to God and other people. How can we help another person? And um, so he said, stop praying for it to be released from financial insecurity. He goes, that's that's continuing the obsession. You have one prayer. God, how can I help me to be of maximum service to you and my fellows? That's it. That's your prayer. Everything else is meditation. And that's what I've been doing for about nine months. And he goes, and if you want to, you know, St. Francis prayer, do that. <laughs> uh, and I gotta say, I have much more peace today than I ever have. And again, because if I believe in a higher power that is taking care of everything and everything is okay, why do I have to ask for it? So I would say, you know, today, I want to leave some time for question and answer. Um, I'm so grateful to OA, and I'm grateful mostly for the people in OA, because, you know, yes, there's the steps, there's the books, but it's not a correspondence course. Um, It's the people who carry the message in a very tangible way. It's the people I see in the meetings every week. Uh, It's my sponsor. Uh, It's my sponsees. And, um, you know, they help me to see the program on a daily basis. And I'm eternally grateful for all of you here today. And um, so I'm going to stop here and open it up for questions.
How's the format? Okay, I will repeat the question. Yes, how do I use the steps with my family? Um, you know, the 10th step has been great. You know, I'm resentful at my kids, wife, whoever, mother, my brother. The reason, what does it affect? My security, self-esteem, personal relations, ambition, pocketbook, sexual relation. And then on a separate piece of paper, I make a list of the character defects I have that if they were removed, I'd no longer have that resentment. And I do that, I read it to someone else, I have a separate fear list that has nothing to do with the resentments. There's a basic fourth step right out of the book. And then here's the kicker that I never did. Then I go and do six and seven, ask to have these character defects removed, and then I act as if they've been removed. I just assume that they've been removed by my higher power. And I go about my day and my next interaction with whoever I was having that problem with, acting as if those character defects were removed. And it is amazing. It is a great emotional shorthand to get to the problem. And if I find I keep doing the same inventory on a particular situation, then I have to change that relationship or that situation. I had a business partner. I must have done six months' worth of uh, inventory on. And it was the same thing. And finally, I said to my sponsor, i gotta, I got to end this business relationship. I'm not doing another 10th step. And he goes, yeah, you're right. So it, was a, it, it also can be a barometer when it's time to do something else. So that's one way that I use. Uh, that's probably the most tangible way that I use the steps in dealing with family. The um, question is, I've gone up and down on my body weight. Um, even if it's your, you're at a normal weight, how do you recognize it? How do you see it and actually believe it? Um, yeah, I mean, I was I, I wear a 40 regular suit. I was up to about a 48 regular suit uh, at top weight. Um, I look at pictures of myself, and I think when I was you know my, younger and like 150 pounds, what was I thinking that I was too fat? You know, I mean, I look at all these pictures and I think, what all this wasted time obsessing about it when really it was pretty constant weight, more or less. Uh, and today, you know, I think about it, I get into it, and that's where, you know, for a while my sponsor had me praying to turn my body image over to my higher power, turn my food plan and my abstinence over to a higher power. It's not my job to say, okay, this weight's good, this weight's bad. It's, do I, am I on my food plan? Am I, my abstinence for me is exercise, uh, and so am I abstinent? In the, in the total sense, yes, then the weight will take care of itself. And there's times when I've had to go on a losing absence. I'm like, you know, this is really bugging me. I probably should be 10 pounds thinner. He's like, okay, so let's work on that. And I do it, and then when I get down to the goal weight, I go back to my main, uh, maintenance food plan. Um, but I really, I also only weigh myself once a month. And since the surgery, I literally, he goes, don't get on the scale until February 1st. Uh, I, I went till last Friday which was close enough, um, because I knew I'd be heavier, and all that would do, and he goes, that number is going to play, that's going to determine your, net, your, your self-worth, that number. And if it's lower, oh, you're going to feel so good about yourself, and then you're going to want to eat some more, because you can get away with it. And if the number's higher, you're going to feel a lot worse about yourself, and then beat yourself up. So knowing that number does what? Nothing. So he goes, that's God's problem. Your job is to follow 
your abstinence, your food plan, and um, ask for guidance. And so that, that's really what I try and do. I try not to think about it as much anymore. Because also the other thing is like, so you're 5 pounds or 10 pounds overweight. Who's going to notice? Like a lot of people, he goes, no. No one's going to care. <laughs> so anyways. Did you have a question? Sure. Uh, the question was, in multiple programs, do the credits transfer? If I've got a lot of recovery in AA, well, then I can just sort of transfer them over to OA. I, you know, I've been in OA 28 It'll be 28 years this July. You know, I have six years of abstinence. Um, so th- those previous 18-year credits just somehow didn't help me out. Um, <laughs> I've got 26 years of sobriety. They didn't help me out. My sponsor in AA, I mean, he spoke around the world, was well-known, and he was 300 pounds and could not get a week of abstinence until he recommitted himself. So I don't think... What happens is the practice of the steps, the exercise is very applicable some of the time in different programs, like the 10-step inventory. It can be very helpful to me in any program. But, as they say, self-knowledge avails us nothing. And I think the danger I run into is, well, gee, I'm doing so well in this program that I don't need to worry about this program. Well, I do, because... The pathology of each disease is slightly different and they manifest themselves in very, very different ways. And the things that make me a compulsive overeater are very different than the things that make me an alcoholic. Um, There are different parts of my personality that get triggered. You know, my isolation. I love to eat in isolation. I like to drink with people. I like to eat in isolation. Um, And I think that and I've, I've got a lot of guys in AA who come to me to sponsor them, sponsor them. And the first thing I say is, I'm not going to sponsor you if you don't go to an OA meeting. Oh, I hate those meetings. And, blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, well, look, you're looking for an AA meeting. This is not AA. This is OA. And they're abstinent and you're not. You're not going to get it by talking to me and not going to an OA meeting. You've got to hear the message. You've got to hear the disease. You've got to hear the recovery in your own program. And you've got to, in some cases, work the steps specifically about eating. And so, um, and it's very tough for them. It's very tough for them to accept that that idea. So I don't think the credits transfer. Day one. Uh, So the question is, how did I clean it up? How did I recommit my abstinence? What did that look like day one? I got a sponsor day one. He said to me, What's your bottom line abstinence? I told him. He goes, okay, do you want to call your food in? I said, yes. So for the first two weeks, I called my food in. And then after that, it was on an ad-needed basis. So I committed to another person, and I stuck to it, and I kept it real simple. And that's how I did it. And I think that's why I'm still abstinent today from day one, 2006. Thank you very much.